I'd like to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to John's Gospel, chapter 1. John begins his Gospel very differently than the other Gospel writers. And he begins, begins with a majestic vision of the glory of God in Jesus Christ in eternity past, even before creation. Now my text this morning is from verse 14, but I'd like you to follow along as I read verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that has been made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light is shining in the darkness. And the darkness is not comprehending it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own things, the things he had made, but his own people did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of an only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. In John 14 or John 1:14 John the apostle says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory glory as of an only begotten of the father full of grace and truth I want us to think about this verse this morning and all of its implications. Just a little bit of Greek philosophy and background before we dive in. Why is Jesus called the Word in John's Gospel? Why is he the Word? Well, if you think about words in general, and if you think deeply and philosophically, A word is a name that you give to something that describes it. 
If I tell you I'm wearing a red and gray tie, at least you have some concept of my tie because the word red means it's kind of like this, and the word gray means it's kind of like this, and those words bring an image to your mind of what something is. The Greeks felt that if you could find a perfect word, it would completely describe in one's mind when you heard it the exact image that was in the speaker's mind. So that from my mind to your mind, if I had a perfect word, I could exactly transmit my thoughts to you with that word that would adequately and completely describe my mental image for your mental image. Jesus Christ is the Word of the Father. He is that one who perfectly, completely, adequately, totally, and thoroughly describes the Father. God Almighty, if you could look at Jesus, as he said to his disciples in the 14th chapter, he that has seen me has seen God. He is the perfect expression of who God is. He is the Word of God, not the text of the Scripture, but the living expression of the eternal God, completely and adequately defined and explained in Jesus Christ. And John tells us this Word became flesh it was put down on the paper of the earth that we could see it with our eyes. This word became flesh and tabernacled, pitched its tent among us so that we could observe and read this word and see what God is like. And John says, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of an only begotten of the Father. You've heard me preach on that concept of begotten before, and some people get all hung up on that, saying, well, Jesus was the Son of God. That means he was kind of made after God. He was his offspring. <laughs> but no. Human beings give birth to human beings, and, and flowers, when they're pollinated, produce flowers of like kind, and horses produce horses, and cats produce cats. And the eternal God, when he begets a son, begets an eternal God. Jesus Christ is the only begotten of the Father, like the Father, without beginning, without end, without limitation, because he is identical in character and nature to the Father. John is not describing for us lineage here, he's describing nature. He is the nature of the Father. He is the exact expression of His character. He is the complete revelation of His person. He is God. The Word of God. In human flesh. In a way that we can see Him. And He has glory. Now what is glory? We sometimes get excited in worship and we say, Glory, hallelujah. Well, not in this church so much, but some folks do that. 
We speak of glory as if it were a word you use when you're praising God. But what is glory? Glory is that aura, that projection of something that tells you about the essence of its core, of its reality in the, in the midst of it. That really helped clear it up, didn't it? You can tell by your look. You're saying, okay, give me more. When you buy a light bulb in the store and you come home and screw it into your lamp, it is a light bulb. It has potential. You can read by it. You can illuminate your family room with it. But until you turn it on, you're going to have a hard time. But when you turn it on, you can't see the light bulb so clearly anymore. Have you ever tried to read what wattage a bulb was when it was turned on? It's a little tough, isn't it? You know, you're, 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 you're looking at that thing. I can't see that. Turn the light off so I can see. Because the brightness of the bulb, the shine of the bulb, obscures the writing on it, but clearly demonstrates what it is. Glory is the radiance. It's the projection. It's the visible expression of what the heart of a thing really is. So that when John says, we beheld his glory, he says the things that Jesus did were the glory of an only begotten from the Father. The things that Jesus did shined out among us in such a way that we could see God clearly. Because the things Jesus did revealed to us the heart of the Father. We've been talking about marvelous truths of the Incarnation. And John is about to unveil for us marvelous truths of the Incarnation. In this Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, that we could see in him God and be astounded at his glory. Now, some commentators, when they come to this passage, feel that perhaps John is giving us a glimpse, this is kind of his story of the transfiguration. Do you remember when Peter, James, and John in the Gospels went up on top of the mountain with Jesus, and Jesus was transfigured before them, and, and he shone like the sun, as it were, and his garments were brilliant white, gleaming and shining, and his face was radiant, and, and they fell at his feet. Peter was so astounded, Peter always expressed awe with his mouth. And, and he said, let's build some tents and just live here forever. This is so marvelous. He had to say something. You've met people like that. You know, they, they, they never get awestruck and silent. They get awestruck and, and verbal. But it was such an amazing event as they saw Jesus transfigured before their eyes and some commentators say that's what John is alluding to here in this 14th verse. The, the glory and splendor of the transfiguration. We saw his glory. 
But I don't think so. I think John is about to tell us, as he unfolds his account of the good news, he is about to tell us what it was like to see the glory of God in the person of Jesus. And as we begin to page through his gospel, some amazing things happen. One of the first things that we see is that Jesus, at about the age of 30, lays down his carpenter's apron and sets his tools on the shelf and goes out to the Jordan River where John the Baptist has been preaching a baptism of repentance and proclaiming and heralding the news of a Messiah who was going to come. And he said, when he comes, oh, this one, I'm not worthy even to bend down and untie his sandals. He is the Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. And one day, Jesus of Nazareth comes walking down to the Jordan and walks out into the water to be baptized by John. And John looks at him and he says, You don't need to be baptized. You should be baptizing me. You've done nothing wrong. But Jesus said, Baptize me. It is the will of the Father that I identify with the lostness and the sinfulness of human beings. And John says that John the Baptist took him beneath the waters of the Jordan, and as he came out, this dove descended from heaven, the Holy Spirit, and a voice thundered, This is my beloved Son. We beheld the glory of God in Jesus, who was identified with sinners. God Almighty, stooping to this level to be one among us. Though he was sinless, and John clearly knew it, here he says, I will take my place among sinners. The glory of the Father. We're starting to see into the Father's heart. We're starting to catch a glimpse of His love. We're starting to see what God is like in Jesus. Oh, and then in chapter 2, Jesus is invited to a wedding. And He goes to this wedding, and this young couple is getting married, and the festivities are on, and the banquet table is, is set, and... But, you know, people have weddings that are rich. I've been to weddings that people spent $25,000, $30,000 on. And that was 25 years ago. <laughs> I don't know what that would be like today. I've been to weddings that people graciously donated and pulled things together and made it happen on almost nothing. But in that culture, oh my... If you were not prepared for the one event of life that was most important to provide for your guest, it was a horrible social embarrassment. And in the midst of this wedding 
feast. This young couple, no doubt of the same social strata of Jesus and Mary and Joseph, common, ordinary folk, somewhat poor, and in that limited capacity, they ran out of wine. What an embarrassment. They can't serve their guests. And Mary comes to Jesus and she says, Son, they don't have any wine. They're out. Can you help? <laughs> Jesus, it, it kind of comes across a little harsh in the scripture, but I think he had a twinkle in his eye when he said, Why are you coming to me? <laughs> What makes you think I can do something here? <laughs> and Jesus calls some servants, and there are water pots there that are used for purification. They don't wash their feet in them. I heard somebody say that sometime, one time. No. <laughs> but there were water pots that were used for ceremonial purification. They held about 30 gallons. There were several of them. Jesus said to the servants, Fill those water pots up and then take a sample. And it was like, oh, this is the most amazing, rare, incredible, flavorful wine we've ever tasted. Catch that bouquet. This is wonderful. Most people serve the good stuff at the beginning and Save the bad stuff till the end, but you save the best. Wow, what a couple. Man, this is great. And Jesus' first recorded miracle is turning water into wine to rescue the embarrassment and the reputation of two newlyweds starting out on a shoestring and about to be humiliated in front of their guest. And he comes to their aid and provides the finest beverage at any wedding feast ever and lots more to go around. I bet they were selling that vintage for years to come <laughs> as they... We're able to keep the excess and sell it off and continue to have a blessing. What a wedding gift. John says, we get insight into the Father when we see His merciful care and charming rescue of a couple in distress as they're beginning their life together. Oh, but the scene turns quite different a little later in the chapter because Jesus goes to the temple and he finds there that there are money changers in the outer court. And they're bartering and selling. And, and if you didn't come to Jerusalem with your sacrifice, oh boy, did they have a chance to stick it to you. Because you knew that you couldn't show up to worship in the temple without a sacrifice. You know? It's kind of like buying fast food on the tollway. It costs twice as much almost as across the street. 
it, it's like, wow, they've really got us. You know, you buy gas, they've really got us. And here they were in the temple and they thought, here's these worshipers coming to seek God and they're going to have a guilty conscience if they don't have some kind of sacrifice to offer, but it's too hard to bring lambs and, and, and turtle doves and how do you keep up with those things over you know, miles and miles of journey? And so these money changers are in the outer court and they're just making a mint, bartering and selling and barking up prices like multifold what it would normally cost. These are special lambs. They've been raised for the sacrifice. You can have this one, marketplace price is $5, but you can have this one for $53 today on special. And Jesus goes into that outer court. And he begins to feel the blood boil. That people are coming to this place to find God. And these Jewish merchants, in the guise of temple worship, have made this place into a mall to gouge people with high prices at the risk of their conscience. And Jesus, the Scripture says, turns those money changers' tables over, cleanses that temple, runs them out of that place. And he says, take these things away, stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. Nothing ticks God off more than religious people who get in the way of normal folks trying to find God. Nothing ticks him off more than that. As when the church gets in the way of normal folk trying to find God. John says, oh, we saw the Father that day when he threw those money changers out. In chapter 3, we find him having a conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is one of the teachers of Israel. He's one of the great uh, educators of the religion. He's the one who teaches the law. Jesus has a private conversation with him and explains to him, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus is, is totally baffled by Jesus' words. And Jesus chides him, but patiently explains, Nicodemus, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? You should know this. No, you can't go back into your mother's womb and be born again. That's not what I'm talking about. That which is born of flesh is flesh. He says, you need a new birth in your spirit. You need to come alive spiritually. Uh, the, the, the new birth is like the Holy Spirit wind blowing. You, you can't explain the details, but you can certainly see the effect. Nicodemus, this is all over the Old Testament. Where, what have you been reading? But Nicodemus didn't get it. And Jesus patiently opens the eyes of one of the scholars of Israel. And John says, we beheld the glory of the Father patiently teaching even the ones who are supposed to know. 
lovingly explaining, graciously unfolding and unveiling truth that they too can be born again. We move along to chapter 4, just a little bit around the corner, and Jesus is tired, and it's been a long journey, and he sits down by a well and sends his disciples on ahead and says, go, go into town and buy some food. I need to rest a while. And while he was sitting by that well, a Samaritan woman came. Now, Samaritans were outcasts. For those of you that may not be familiar with the t racial tension between the Jews and the Samaritans, Samaritans were kind of half-breeds. They were those Jews who had hung out in the Promised Land during the various occupations and had freely intermarried with uh, other Gentile peoples, and the Jews hated them because they considered that to be <coughs> sort of a traitor-like <coughs> traitor behavior. And not only that, this Samaritan woman uh, wasn't showing up at the well at the normal time because not only did the Jews hate her because she was a Samaritan, but all the Samaritan women hated her because of the kind of woman she was. Who knows, maybe she had stolen a couple of their husbands already because she'd been married five times and the man she was currently living with she wasn't married to. So here she is, a Samaritan, a woman, showing up, at, a, at an odd time of day, because she needs to go to the well when the other women aren't going to be there, who are every time she gets near them. And uh, she's on her sixth man. And who should she find there but Jesus? And Jesus very politely asks her for a drink. And she's kind of astounded, because Jews don't talk to Samaritans. And Jewish men don't talk to the most respectable of women alone in a field. And here is this Jewish guy openly talking with a woman with a bad reputation from the other side of the tracks in this half-breed kind of culture. And she says, excuse me? And Jesus says, ah, if you knew who was talking to you, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. And he proceeds to unfold for her the story of her life, the longing of her heart, the searching of her soul, and says to her, in essence, I'm not the kind of man you've had, but I am the man you need. If you come to me, I will give you living water, and you won't ever thirst again. I'm the one who will satisfy the itch that is in your heart. I will meet you. I will satisfy you. I will give you what you long for. And she was so overwhelmingly touched by a man, the, maybe the first man who truly loved her, didn't want to use her. Didn't want to play with her. Didn't want to abuse her. Just wanted to truly love her. And met her where she was. She went and told everybody and prepared the way for the gospel to spread in Samaria. And when the disciples came back and began to sort out what had happened, 
John says, oh, we beheld the glory of the Father. This is the Father seeking the lost. This is the glory of God looking for those who are downtrodden and hurting. This is the God of glory that we see in Jesus. In chapter 5, John tells us that he came by a pool one day and there was a fellow sitting there that had been waiting for a long time to get in those healing waters and never could. And Jesus said to him, do you want to get well? There's an awful lot in that question, do you want to get well? Why else was he there? There's uh, this hint that maybe there was some psychosomatic stuff going on, that he was not only physically ill and crippled, but he was emotionally ill and crippled. And there was all kinds of things going on in his life. And when Jesus asked him the question, he rather pathetically said, Sir, I come down here every day, but when the waters are stirred, there's no one to put me in, and I just day after day, nothing ever happens good to me. And Jesus said, pick up your pallet and walk. And he was healed, completely healed. He took it up and he began to, to, to walk around and, and rejoice the fact that he was in that moment, his heart was healed, his body was healed, his mind was healed, his soul was healed. Jesus had completely delivered him. And John says, we beheld the glory of God. We saw what God was like, that, that you never get so pathetic that God doesn't care. And you never get so far down that God can't lift you up. We saw the glory of God in Jesus that day, in Solomon's portico, when this man began to walk in the power of God. The Jews were really upset with Jesus for that one. And so they challenged him. And in the rest of chapter 5, Jesus testifies to his deity, making no mistake that he is indeed God come in human flesh. In chapter 6, the multitudes are hungrily following him for every word that falls from his lips. When all of a sudden they find that they've followed him for so long, now they're physically hungry and they're out away from town and they're on this mountainside and they don't have anything to eat and the crowd is getting hungry. And Jesus says to his disciples as they come to him, Lord, these people are getting hungry. They're getting distressed. Why don't you send them home so they can have a meal? And Jesus says, why don't you feed them? And these 12 guys look at him and they look out at this crowd that literally fills the hillside. There's 5,000 men and their wives and their kids. Let's say 20,000 people to be conservative. And Jesus says, you feed them. What would you do if he said 5,000 people right now? <laughs> feed them. <laughs> it's like, whoa. And so Jesus says to them, or they say to him, there's a lad here with uh, five loaves and two fish. He says, well, that'll do. Bring that along. And he blesses it. And he breaks it. And he begins to distribute it. And as they walk through the crowd, taking the fish and the loaves out of these baskets, it, it just it never runs out. It's constant. Until the whole crowd has had an adequate meal and when the disciples come back, their baskets are still full. And Jesus 
reveals the glory of the Father as the one who cares about your stomach as well as your soul. And he doesn't let a single sparrow fall to the ground without taking note. And he knows the hairs that are on your head. And he knows every detail of your life. And he meets your needs. David said, I am young and now I am old, but I have never seen the righteous forsaken. This is the Father who cares about your hunger. And Jesus who is the bread of life. In John chapter 7, he goes back to the temple for the great feast. And on the last day of the feast, the scripture says that he stands up in their midst and cries out with a loud voice, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. This is the end of the Feast of Booths, the celebration of the tabernacles. This is the, the solemn assembly at the end of this, of this whole week of feasting and ceremony. It's a, it's a special time. And Jesus interrupts the service and cries out with a loud voice, Are you thirsty? Come to me. Out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John says, Oh, we beheld the glory of God that day as Jesus stood in the midst of the people and offered them the living water, the Holy Spirit, the vibrant life, the, the abundance of living that will never be exhausted. What a marvelous revelation. The Jews once again got pretty upset with him, the Jewish leaders, and we find in chapter 8 that they set up a situation I know they set it up because the guy didn't show up and they knew exactly where to find the woman. They found a woman in the very act of adultery. They had to have set it up. We never hear anything about the man. But they drag this poor woman right into the middle of the crowd, throw her down at the feet of Jesus, and they say, we're going to expose this guy for the, the liar and the and the fraud that he is, we're going to make him deny the law of Moses in front of all of us. Because in the law it says, if you catch someone in the act of adultery, writing the act, they should be stoned to death. Now here's the law. Jesus, what are you going to do about it? And the scripture says that Jesus just very patiently knelt down and began to draw in the sand with his finger. Just right, right on the ground. I preached, this was one of my first sermons when I was 17 years old, and I preached this sermon, and I wondered what Jesus wrote in the ground. You know, did he start writing a list of sins? Did he, perhaps, with the word of knowledge, begin to write some of their sins? I don't know. But he started writing in the ground. And they're kind of waiting for an answer, you know. Except they're holding rocks. They're ready to have a stoning. And Jesus says, Okay, you got me. He didn't say that, but he did say this. Whoever among you has never committed a sin... You throw the first stone. 
And he just continued to write. And this went from this to... And the next thing he heard was not stones being thrown, but dropped as the crowd turned and walked away. And it wasn't long before there were two people left in the scene. This adulterous woman thrown in the dirt and Jesus who was kneeling down looking at her. And he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she said, they're gone. There is no one. He was the only sinless one in the crowd. And his words were, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. She got her life back. She got her heart back. She got her soul back. She met the Master in the worst possible condition. And he had nothing for her but love and grace and mercy. And she was a changed person forever. And John says we beheld his glory, God's glory, the Father's glory. We saw the Father's heart that day in Jesus. The Word made flesh living among us. We saw him in his tenderness. And we knew that there was no sinner on the earth that could not come to God because he has such great compassion. In chapter 9, he heals a man who was born blind. What an astounding thing that he gives the blind sight. In chapter 10, he reveals himself as the great shepherd of the sheep. The one who will lead us beside still waters and take us to green pastures and pour the healing ointment on our bruises and bangs and cuts and injuries of the world, the one who will soothe and care and lead and protect and guide. In chapter 11, oh, this is the crowning moment in John's Gospel before the cross when Mary and Martha send the desperate word and say, our brother Lazarus is sick and we're afraid he's going to die. Will you please come? And it's four days before Jesus comes. But when he gets there, Lazarus has already died and been buried in a tomb and a rock has been covered over the front of it. Jesus says, take me there. Mary and Martha are heartbroken and the Jews mourning with them suppose that maybe he wants to go and weep and mourn also at the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus. And when he gets to that tomb, Jesus, the Word made flesh, in the midst of the people, simply bows his head and says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me and that you always hear me. Roll that stone away, open that door. But he stinks, Lord, he's been dead. Open that door, Lazarus, come out of there! 
And this one who was dead hobbles to the threshold of that cave and he says, unwrap him from those grave cloths and let him go. And Mary and Martha were astounded to receive back their brother who had been dead and here he is alive and Jesus reveals himself as the resurrection and the life for all who grieve. He is the resurrection and the life and the hope that even the dead, even the dead hear his voice and come forth. And John says, we beheld his glory as of an only begotten of the Father. From that moment on, the Gospel of John turns to the somber note as Jesus begins to approach the cross John chapter 14, he reveals to his disciples that he is the way and the truth and the life. And then just in a few moments, he says, and you are my friends. You disciples, you are my friends. I have called you friends. I don't call you servants or slaves. I'm telling you my heart's secrets. I'm revealing the innermost thoughts of my being to you. I'm letting you in on the plan of God. I am taking you in as my confidants. You are my friends. And John says, we beheld his glory, revealing the heart of the Father, who longingly is still looking for friendship with us. The God of the universe wants to be my friend. Utterly amazing. And in John 19, we see him crucified. Jesus of Nazareth, hung on a cross. Mary is there before the cross. John is with her. It is a sad moment. The sky is black. The Father has turned his eyes from the sight as Jesus has taken on himself all the sin of the world. And the Apostle Paul declared many years later with, with wonder and amazement, but God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And John says we beheld his glory, even on the cross spilling his blood, the Lamb of God, for the sins of the world. And then in John chapter 20, on that resurrection Sunday morn, when Mary went to the tomb and discovered that it was empty and longed for one she had loved so dearly. And we see that wonderful, tender encounter as Mary, with tear-filled eyes and grief-stricken heart, blind to the events that were happening right before her face, says, if you're the gardener, if you're the servant here, and you know where they've taken Jesus, would you please tell me, I'll go to him, and I'll take care of his body. And the one that she could not see through her tears suddenly speaks her name. Mary, oh Mary. I am he. I, this is Jesus. Oh, Mary, she knew it. She knew it the moment she heard her name by that one who could speak our name as only he can. 
the familiar voice. And she gripped him in a bear hug like never before. This is Jesus. And he says, go tell my brothers. Go tell my brothers. I, I am alive. You remember what I said to you last week. It's the first time in all of Scripture that he called them brothers because now they were capable of being born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. They were his kin through the resurrection and the atonement. Go tell my brothers that I will come to them and that I am alive. John tells us in his Gospel, in all of these passages, from start to finish, he says, We beheld His glory. Day after day we were with Him. Day after day we followed Him. Day after day we saw the things He did. His love, His compassion, His tenderness. We saw what made Him angry. That hypocrisy that barred people from open access to God. We saw what touched his heart. We saw how he could work through the clever machinations of the Pharisees and their trick questions and cut to the chase every time. We were amazed at his wisdom. We listened to his teaching. We saw him heal the sick. We saw him raise the dead. We saw him give the blind a new sight. We saw him cast out the demons, we saw Him feed the multitudes, and in every case, we saw the Father. We saw the heart of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. The Word become flesh and dwelled among us. To a poor, newlywed couple, He is the rescuer of the wedding feast. To the hypocrites of the church, He is the restorer of true worship. To the well-educated but spiritually blind, He is the explainer of mysteries. To the social outcast and the unstable, He is the source of true satisfaction. To the chronically ill, He is the great physician. To the hungry, He is the provider for thousands and the living bread. To the truly thirsty, He is the living water. To the utterly sinful, He is the tender and merciful forgiver. To the blind, He is the light. To the lost and the wanderers, He is the good shepherd. To the dying and the grieving, He is the resurrection and the life. To the confused traveler, He is the way, both the truth and the life. To the hopeful gardener, He is the true vine. To those dead in sins and trespasses, He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. To the lonely and brokenhearted, He is the gentle comforter. To the sad and disillusioned, He is the elder brother who has risen from the grave nevermore to die. To all the world lost in darkness, He is the risen Savior, the light of the world, the King of Kings. Isaiah says He is the Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. He is the Majestic One. He is the Beginning and the End, the Alpha and the Omega. He is the One who made all things by the Word of His power and holds them together by that same Word. He is the One who has risen and is now seated at the right hand of the Father and all things are in subjection under His feet. 
He is the one who has made public display and triumph over the powers of darkness. He is the one who ever lives to make intercession, praying for you and for me. He is the one who has shown us the Father. And my friend, for you this morning, Jesus is the answer to any need that you have here today. He is the one who will meet you at any level, who will reach you in any condition, who will touch any need of your life, be it physical, be it spiritual, be it mental, be emotional, whatever you need, Jesus is your answer. He is the one who will give you life and that eternally and full of abundance. He will give you joy unspeakable, full of glory. He is the one who gives peace that passes comprehension. Jesus, Jesus, the Word made flesh, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of an only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Oh, eternal Lord Jesus in the heavens, thank you, thank you so much for coming to this earth as a tiny baby being born in a stable, Mary laying your precious body in a feeding trough, living among us without fanfare, in common clothes, an ordinary speech. But all John says, you who for a little while were made lower than the angels, we saw your glory and we see it still. The lover of our souls, King Jesus, you have come to us and you will come again, and we give you praise. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord Jesus. And I want to say to anyone that's here this morning who does not know him personally, remind you of those words in John chapter 1, verse 12, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become sons of God, even to those that believe on his name. And if you're here today and you do not know this wonderful Savior, as the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart and you become aware of the fact that you have indeed sinned against a holy God, I want you to know there's a Savior for you this morning. And you can trust him. He will forgive your sin. He will heal your life. He will take away the guilt and shame of your past. He will fill you with His Spirit. He will give you abundant life. He will meet you right now. And where you sit, you can simply and humbly say, Lord Jesus, you came to this earth for me. I invite you to come into my heart today. Be my Lord and Master. Be my Savior. Forgive my sin. I give you my life. God, would you grant the faith that they might believe. In Jesus' name, amen.